This is Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. Talking about climate change is important, but not the doom and gloom scenarios presented by mainstream media. Environmental Voices Rising brings you conversations with women environmental leaders, women who are taking on the challenges of climate change and working on solutions in their communities. The climate change conversations we have at Environmental Voices Rising are about what we can do to fix things and why taking action, however small, in your community is a place to begin. We are not planning on Mars as our next destination because right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. We invite you to listen to the podcasts, subscribe on our website, eVoices Rising, Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We also invite you to join us, listen in, and find a place in your community to support, because yes, you can make a difference. Add your voice to Environmental Voices Rising. In this episode of Environmental Voices Rising, we are going to be talking about green infrastructure. And since infrastructure, in the traditional sense, is a major political agenda item right now, with the inevitable boring commentary, you might feel like skipping this episode. But we are inviting you to not. And instead, listen in, because green infrastructure is about finding solutions. Solutions for managing rain and stormwater runoff and creating healthy spaces for our cities, schools, and public areas. An estimated 10 trillion gallons of untreated stormwater runoff runs through dirty streets and parking lots in rain events, picking up everything from raw sewage to trash to toxins, chemicals, and oil. And all of it is supposed to make it into the city's sewer system. What doesn't make it in ends up flooding the roads. And that's 10 trillion gallons every year of polluted water spilling into the environment and our drinking water. No wonder those systems got a D-plus from the National Resource Defense Council. Imagine bringing that report card home to Mother Earth. But there is a huge opportunity to upgrade these water systems using green infrastructure. And if you aren't familiar with that term, we invite you to listen to this episode of Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, because today I will be talking with Kat Sawyer, who is the Greening Urban Watersheds Program Manager at the Watershed Project in Richmond, California. And I am delighted that she is here to help us understand how green infrastructure can make our cities, schools, and public spaces healthier and climate change resilient. Not only is Kat qualified with a master's degree in organic architecture and many years of experience, she brings her passion, enthusiasm, and desire to share the possibility of building solutions with green infrastructure. Welcome, Kat. Well, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So I wanted to start by asking you, what was the spark that led you to this work of greening urban areas and rethinking how we design with water? You know, I just love the places where nature comes into the city, those intersection points. 
I have studied urban ecology and have just been passionate about that for decades and into water through the rainwater catchment in public schools. That's when it re- I really got lit up for water at that time because I had been interested in all kinds of urban ecology, but for some reason, the rainwater catchment in public schools really, you know, turned me on to water, bringing water into the city and, you know, being more conscious of water in the city. Uh, So, you you know, I guess it was 2010. I was uh, really interested in studying about how to build rainwater catchment systems. And at that same time, I was partnering with the San Francisco Unified School District Sustainability Office, and they were interested in finding someone to manage their program called Tap the Sky, all about rainwater catchment in schools. And it was part of the green schoolyard movement. You know, I guess a lot of parents and nonprofit organizations were really trying to push the school district in San Francisco to start to create some natural places for their kids to play. And and I really, I, I came in on that wave. I'm an experiential learner. So when I'm interested in something, I like to do it. So I did it. I started to get grants from the SFPUC and the Community Challenge Grant Program for Urban Watershed Stewardship and just started going and really never stopped. Put in almost 30 rainwater catchment systems in, in San Francisco Unified. Could you describe one of these projects? What, like, I know I've seen some and they're quite large, but I know they can come in all sizes and people actually can get barrels for their homes. But if you're working with the school, you're probably work, working with a larger construction. That's exactly it. On a school ground, there are just oceans of asphalt. There's so much pavement. So it's often paired with depaving and putting in a garden. But what we would try to do is capture rain off, you know what they call those little temporary bungalows, the ones that have been around for 50 years on school grounds. They always have a metal roof top, which is really good for a clean rainwater catchment surface. And so what we would do is I would partner with each school, we'd have a parent or or a teacher or some kind of uh, environmental educator that would kind of be the champion for that school. And then we would look and try to see how big of a tank could we put in? How much real estate could we take up on this area of the playground that you know, you're always trying to negotiate with, you know, what PE might need or what's possible, what the things that you have to kind of work around. But yeah, I try to put in as big of a cistern as possible, but some of them would end up being a series of smaller tanks that would kind of be residentially scaled as well. So these are like you're connecting pipes and you're diverting the water off the roof into these pipes and then you're and then so what do you do with the water after you've captured it that's what you used to do water your gardens the school gardens Exactly it. We were trying to complete the circle so that we weren't drawing more from the water needs of the school as we put in gardens. You know, it was kind of a complementary process, but at the same time, we were using it a lot as a demonstration project and an educational piece for the kids. But yeah, always trying to put as big of a, of a tank in as possible, but you got to always make sure and measure that gate that 
that's going to get you in there. You know, so there was one school where we ended up having to, uh, you know, get a couple of wood planks and and push it up and over a wall because somebody hadn't (laughs) measured. But so, you know, you try, but definitely trying to get as big of a system in as possible and putting it in next to that, the temporary buildings, the bungalows that were basically about a thousand square feet. So, they could capture up to 12,000 gallons of water per year. And uh, so we couldn't even put in that much of rainwater catchment. Biggest tanks I would put in usually were around 3,000 gallons. With that, how long can you water a garden with that? The more water you have, the longer you can push into your dry season. But yes, it would always be something that would not go all the way. So, you know, it wouldn't last all summer, but it would get, it would get you you know, partially there, you know, as much as you could capture and use, depending on how about how big the garden is. There are a couple things that you talked about there. One, of course, is the green school movement, of which I am a big champion, especially of taking out asphalt and bringing in gardens and green spaces. The other was making this visible so that everyone can see what is going on and getting students, teachers and parents involved. How was that? That was the funnest part. Uh, you know, that was always great to involve the parents and students for the big work day. Oftentimes they would be doing part of the project that may have been in the garden. And then I would be working on the rainwater tank at the same time. And we would be putting together all the pipes to convey the water over to the tank and helping to explain, you know, the hands-on learning really helps people to understand how these systems work. And you know, doing that with the help of a school community ensures that it's going to be taken care of and that people understand how the system works. And because it is relatively simple. I mean, you're, you're basically capturing the water that's going into that gutter, that's going, flowing into the downspout. You intersect at the downspout point, and then you direct that water over to the rainwater system to your rain catchment tank. So you mentioned what overflow. Uh, tell us more about what a rain garden does. Yeah, you know, a, a rain garden is really just a, an area that's kind of like a little depression, like a little, like a hole, like a ditch. You know, a swale is kind of like a ditch. A rain garden is kind of like a big uh, hole in the ground where you're inviting that water to come in and you're putting special plants that in soil that can handle in that water and help it to infiltrate into the ground. So, you know, if, if what we would do with a rainwater tank system in a school is try to make sure that the overflow went to that permeable area where you could create a rain garden, dig it down, uh, put in the special soil that it, that has some sand in it so that it allows for infiltration, put special plants in it that can handle a good bit of water coming into it at once, it, but then also can handle dry periods in between. So, you know, a lot of the times you see rainwater or rain gardens connected to downspout disconnection. Like, so if you want to, if your downspout is going into the sewer and you want to disconnect that and create a special rain garden for it. That's a good application for a rain garden. So rain gardens can be used in a lot of different places, like schools, public areas, and even homeowners can put in their own rain gardens. The water runs off your roof and can be directed into the rain garden, and this helps reduce the stormwater overload that might otherwise flood the streets and carry all those pollutants into the larger waterways, like the streams and the rivers, and in the case of San Francisco, the bay. Yeah, it's that point where you're trying to 
allow for some water to go into the ground and not have it just go drain directly into the drainage system, into the sewer system. In San Francisco, for instance, there's the combined sewer system. So our stormwater and the drainage water, black water from your house, your, your gray water and, and all of that are connected. So that's why when it rains and overwhelms the system, it's a real problem because you're having sewage inter- interact with the stormwater and overflow. So that's something that that's why the San Francisco PUC was really interested in funding those projects. Whereas in the East Bay, you know, you have all these wonderful creeks and streams that flow down into the bay and you don't want those to erode and get overwhelmed. So if you capture rainwater high in the watershed in the hills, you can actually slow that water down and allow for, you know, holding on to it, using it later and not polluting the bay. Everything that we do to help us to capture clean, natural rainwater and use it before it just flows away unseen is that's what we're that's the goal you know seeing water so slowing water down and allowing it to sink in the ground is one strategy to reduce flooding another is the bioswale and i know the watershed project has designed and implemented quite a few in the city of richmond can you tell us how a bioswale works Certainly, bioswales are, you may have seen them around town. They uh, have what's called a curb cut that allows that the water from the street to flow into them. You just cut into the curb that where it meets the street and you let the water go into this bioswale instead of into the concrete or the drain. Exactly, or into the drain on the side of the street. You know, all of the streets are designed so that the water flows to the edges and then goes into drains. So you try to, that's why you see a lot of bioswales in parking lots, for instance, because you can put those curb cuts in every 10 or 15 feet, an open section that lets the water flow in. And then, but what makes a bioswale different from a swale is that a bioswale is a little bit more engineered. It's designed with an underdrain pipe which is connected to the existing drainage system so that you can actually, when your bioswale gets saturated with water, then it overflows into the existing drain so that you're, you're making it to where it's a kind of a closed system in a way, but it's connected to the existing drainage for the, whatever the city has. Tell us about one of your successful bioswale projects. You know, my favorite one that we did, that the Watershed Project did with the city of Richmond is at the Booker T. Anderson Community Center. It's right next to a park and it's in a parking lot as a lot of bioswales are. And what makes this one special is that there's this little section of Baxter Creek that is daylighted right as it flows through the Booker T. Anderson Community Park. And you're going to have to tell us what daylighting is. Oh, yes. I'll get to daylighting. <laughs> okay. Okay, right. so, okay. So we'll started with, you know, the Baxter, oftentimes creeks are, any kind of creek and stream that runs through the city is usually put into some kind of pipe or, or concrete channel. And we never see it. it. We don't even know it's there. We don't even know it used to be there uh, because all of it is, is hidden from us. So daylighting a creek is whenever you're letting that creek see daylight again. You're actually taking it out of the culvert, taking it out of the pipe and let it flow freely as it would in a natural way. In this instance, Baxter Creek, right before it goes into the bay, 
they daylighted it right there at the Booker T. Anderson Community Center. And it, that took 10 years. It took Creek, you know, lovers and, and advocates a long time to daylight that little section. So the watershed project after that came in with a grant from the California Coastal Conservancy that was awarded to us in the city of Richmond so that we could put a bioswale in that parking lot because what happened is all of this nice big parking lot drains, it's all graded to where it drains into this one drain that then flows into the creek. So we put a, a nice bioswale adjacent to the creek on the edge of that parking lot so that all that water as it's sheeting over when it rains goes flows into the curb cuts into the bioswale it lets itself the water gets filtered by the plants and the soil so that it's cleaner by the time that it flows into the creek which then would go into the bay so every little bit helps i understand you also measure you're able to measure you do actual measurement of the water quality that's right. We have a water quality, uh, water monitoring team that goes out when it rains. They watch for the rain events and they go, They what they do is they go to the parking lot and wait for the rain to start. Whenever the rain starts, they note the time. Then they start to, to notice and, and make note of when that water starts to flow into the bioswale. They get out with their equipment to capture little water samples and they, they get a sample of the inflow. And then they get a sample of the outflow where the pipe drains into the drain at the edge. And so they take those two water samples and they take it to the lab. And what we found is that it reduces the oil the heavy metals that are coming or the metals that are coming off of the cars, the diesel products. So it actually does a great job. Plants and soil do an amazing job for us. We should be thanking them all the time for what they can do for us. And when we do these kind of things where we smartly design in harmony with nature, our cities get healthier and it's better for us. It's better for the plants. It's better for the animals. It's better for everyone. What's great about green infrastructure is it can be a buffer to the pipe system, which is called gray, you know, gray infrastructure. When you design green infrastructure alongside those, as it can be this buffer, this green buffer that just helps the, the gray infrastructure too. So, you know, there's no doubt that water is going to be efficiently moved through pipes. But when we help move it through landscapes first, then we're making our cities healthier and more vibrant. This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and I'm talking with Kat Sawyer about green infrastructure. Kat works with the Watershed Project in Richmond, California. So let's get back to our conversation about how she works with the city to redesign green infrastructure solutions to alleviate flooding. I know the Watershed Project works in partnership with the city. Tell us about some of the green infrastructure projects that you work on with the city. We've actually done some really good work with the city in partnership around where the water flows into the Richmond Greenway. So the Richmond Greenway connects, is a, well, it's a rails to trails park 
So it used to be where the railway would go through the city of Richmond, and then that's all been reclaimed and, and different groups are trying to adopt different spots. So the, the places where we've adopted a spot, we always try to do a, a bioswale or a swale that actually captures that water that's flowing into the street and then would, would normally go into a big pipe. And so that's a great place to try to put a, a bioswale. So yeah, this, you know, we work with the city infrastructure department. A lot of, I mean, it's kind of a department of public works thing. Cause like you said, flooding in the cities is a problem. And it's because when you think about cities, if you look at the, the high view, if you look at our cities from space, it's gray because everything's paved over. It's concrete. And of course, we have to have streets and roads to get everywhere. And our homes have a roof that's a hard surface. But trying to find ways to slow that water down and sink it into the ground, that's the opportunity that we have now that if we're thinking about designing more with nature, that's the chance we have. And when we do that, it does reduce flooding, which is a huge issue for cities trying to manage water. I mean, having a lot of water come down at once is is problematic in a place that's paved over. And a lot of times our water infrastructure, our sewer infrastructure is old and you know, was built years and years and decades ago. So everything that we can do to try to ease up on that and find other ways for that water to go in a more natural way, it helps our cities become more like sponges. And that's what we're really looking to do. Sink that water in. Acting like a sponge. I like that analogy. It's good. Let's preserve the water we do need by storing it in the ground instead of letting it get wasted while it just floods the streets with nowhere to go. Exactly. When you hold water back in with a rainwater catchment system and then put in swales and rain gardens, all of those things together help manage the problem of flooding and then the infiltration it is creates is part of the solution of recharging groundwater because when you look at a a natural watershed there's all these soft areas for the water to to fall in onto and and it flows into the creeks and streams but part of it also goes to recharge the aquifers that are in the ground and and when we don't let that water get down to it we interrupt the natural water cycle but cities that are here already you know all we need to retrofit a lot of things you know we can't go back <laughs> no we can't so i think probably your education tell us about how you educate students the volunteers communities and because i'm sure like educating people is a really key to like moving a lot of these projects along exactly it's kind of partially these projects are funded in under-resourced areas that have been hit hard by industrialization and don't have as much green space. So they're trying to fund projects in neighborhoods, in parts, you know, in areas that you know that suffer more from environmental pollution. But at the same time, there is not really a, something in place to actually help maintain those. So these are often capital projects that are funded. And then the maintenance is left to the community to do, which is not fair. <laughs> Everybody's kind of figuring that out now. But in order to really have a project, you know, really utilized by the community that it's housed in, you need to have participation from in every part that you possibly can. And so, you know, it's part of it is trying to involve the local community from the beginning 
in how the space is designed. But uh, part of it is also trying to educate people about how the the benefits of these systems and how the, of these natural elements of stormwater management and, and how they work, what's what makes them so good, how they help. And that really, it we do that by trying to have people come and help us plant. So we have a contractor that'll do the heavy lifting, you know, obviously machinery is going to do the grading. We'll do a lot of the things that are hard uh, that are can, that have to be done with machinery and professionals. That happens first, and then we invite the community members and, and students to come help us plant. Well, I have to say that the Watershed Project has really great volunteer days because I've been out on several of them, and they're fun. People bring music, food. I've even seen people bring goats and chickens for the kids, and there's always multiple generations, families, church groups, all kinds of people just digging and planting with a lot of opportunities. And I just love the way that you engage the community in your volunteer days. We think it's so very important how we do the work. You know, we are not trying to recreate, you know, in, or do the same job as a contractor or a landscape uh, company. We, our whole goal is to do this as a, in partnership so that we can help people understand why it's there. And so uh, we definitely see our role as educational as well as, you know, as implementing something. We want to also make sure and share it and have it be a, a community-oriented event. Tell us about some of your new plans and projects. Always got projects in the pipeline. Well, you know, one of the projects that we're just starting right now is going to be a bioswale or just a swale. I think it's not. It. it I don't know if it's. It, it. There's no drain to actually connect it to, but we're going to do a nice swale that is adjacent to Dirt World. I don't know if you've heard of Dirt World, but that's right there on the Richmond Greenway, and it's a. Is that for bikes? It's for bikes. It's for kids to go and do jumps and it's a bunch of dirt <laughs> that has been shaped into hills and a track for the BMX bikes to ride around. So we are going to do a, a nice swale that runs alongside that to help manage the stormwater that flows through that area. But also we're going to plant some trees and do kind of a better entryway into, into dirt world at the 21st street entrance. So that's a, it's, that's just starting, but I like dirt world because it's such a fun place for kids to play. And it's really a vibrant place on the greenway. There's always something happening there. And, you know, that's the exciting part too, is, you know, being a part of something that's already, you know, coming alive. And another one of the projects that I'm really excited about is a school greening project in Oakland at the Coliseum College Prep Academy. And that one has been in the planning for a while, and we're going to be starting construction soon. And the pandemic just made it that much more important to have outdoor areas where uh, students can sit and be shaded and, you know, have their lunch or, you know, have an outdoor classroom, outdoor teaching area, all of these places. Whenever schools are so, are paved over like everything else, but even more because it's easier to maintain concrete than it is plants. And, you know, that's understandable, but it, we suffer whenever everything is paved. It's just so dead, you know. Really good points. Is there anything else that about green infrastructure that you would really like to share with us? 
You know, I mentioned before that uh, green infrastructure helps cities to behave more like sponges. And what that really is, is it, we're trying to mimic how a natural watershed works. That's what I want to try to get across about green infrastructure is that it is a way for cities to uh, learn from a, a natural watershed and try to design special landscapes within cities that can help to infiltrate stormwater, slow it down, reduce flooding, but also create habitat. Uh, green infrastructure is a chance for cities to really shine uh, and show and demonstrate the solutions. I think that's what people need to see is that there are solutions and that that people already understand how to do some of this. And the more we do, the more we learn, and then the better we get at everything. We need to try to help cities to become living cities. And green infrastructure helps us do that. Thank you so much for that. It's so important to highlight the value of partnerships and collaboration when we want to engage for climate change solutions. There's also the inspiration we get from others. Who are some of the women working in environmental solutions who inspire you? Thanks for that question. I've thought about it, and I, and I have a couple of answers. I have two different directions I'd like to highlight here. So one hero that I want to highlight is Laura Allen. She founded an organization that used to be called Greywater Gorillas because Greywater uh, installations were against the rules. They were illegal under the plumbing code. So her organization would teach people how to install gray water systems even when it wasn't legal. And then what happened was she got invited to, by the plumbing, the people in the state to go and help rewrite the code because they realized that gray water was important and they should actually be trying to promote it instead of trying to stop it. So now her organization is called Greywater Action, and she helped to, write, to rewrite the plumbing code to include the gray water. So I thought that was great that she, you know, went from an outlaw to writing the law, rewriting the law. I would like to highlight a couple of women who work at, at SFPUC, Sarah Minnick and Sarah Bloom. I've been working with them for years, and they are trying to help to encourage a green infrastructure from within the system. So working with the SFPUC, they've designed uh, programs to for grants to help encourage uh, green infrastructure and also a new regulation actually that's so important that is called the stormwater management requirement. And that is where you have to, if you have a development, a new development that's over 5,000 square feet, you have to manage every drop of rain that falls on the building or on your property. You can't send any water into the sewer. So what they've done with that is they've created a situation where new buildings have to put in rainwater catchment. They have to put in uh, green infrastructure around the, the edges. They do all, they, they put, bring the water in and flush the toilets with rainwater. So all of these things are encouraged with a law, but also they are trying to empower people to put in green infrastructure in schools and things like that with their grant programs. So, you know, those things, I think, you know, the people who are just quietly day by day getting in there and doing the work, I admire that. Yes, let's give a shout out to all these women. Thank you so much for highlighting them, for women who are just doing the work. 
And now tell us about the Watershed Project, your website and where people can find out more about what you're doing. And even if you don't live in the area, you can check out the Watershed Project because it's a great model of community engagement. Yes, and if you go to the watershedproject.org, that's our website, and you can email us at info at thewatershedproject.org. And yeah, we uh, engaging volunteers is a big part of our work, and what we're trying to do is help people to connect with their local watersheds. And we, we try to do that with education programs, going into schools, bringing kids and older students on field trips. But we also try to do that with volunteers of all ages um, to come out and help us to maintain our green infrastructure or do something like a coastal cleanup day where we go and, and pick up trash at the coastline or we do creek cleanups and oftentimes, you know, go into areas where a creek is flowing and try to to clean those up. We just are trying to help connect people with water all around them and nature close to them. And how they can participate in really simple solutions that they don't have to be overwhelmed by having to think of a huge project, that there are lots of places. The Watershed Project is a, a great model of it, engaging with just small things, like even cleaning up the greenway, cleaning up the coast, small things that can be done by everybody. So I really appreciate the Watershed Project's focus in that direction. Well, thanks. We appreciate you coming out and volunteering and inviting me to come talk to you. I think it's great that you're trying to really highlight solutions. I think that's the best way for people to not get daunted by everything that's out there. And, you know, you find that you you meet nice people whenever you get out and work in your community. You get to know your neighbors a little bit or you get to get to meet people who have similar interests and who or trying to find out more about these things. So I'd be delighted to hear from anyone who'd be interested in volunteering. Well, Kat, thank you so much for joining us today and enlightening us about green infrastructure and reminding us that actually getting outside and getting to know your neighbors while you're working on a community project is not only fun, but it's a way to help climate action. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Sink that water, sea water. <laughs> Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic. We now have a new blog page on our website that features quick and easy reads on environmental and sustainability jargon and buzzwords. Subscribe to the website, listen to the podcast. And join us on Twitter and Instagram. Stay tuned for more episodes as we join our voices to meet the challenges of climate change. This is the podcast with solutions. Solutions.